today I'm going to give us a Christmas meditation, the day after Christmas. I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but we're going to go for it in the afterglow of Christmas. We're going to think about what Christmas means the day after and every day after. And so this morning we're not in a particular text, we're jumping around to a lot of different scriptures as we think about this weighty, heady, beautiful truth that Jesus took on humanity in the incarnation and he never took it off. We pray now to the one who intercedes on our behalf, who is, as Corinthians describes him, the man of heaven, Jesus Christ himself. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray with your Son, the man of heaven, who intercedes with your Holy Spirit who gives us words and groanings to pray back to you, that you will continue to open our minds and our hearts to marvel at Jesus and to marvel at the gospel and to marvel at your plan from before the foundations of the world that will stretch forward into all eternity that you will join God and man forever in perfect, happy union. We praise you for this in Jesus' name, amen. Now friends, I know you guys are familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you know around Christmas time I got a quote, the famous Narnia quote, but... Basically, four kids, they find themselves in this mystical world in Narnia, and the place is like frozen solid, and there's snow everywhere, and they learn that the white witch has cursed the place, and because she has a curse on it, they learn that it is always winter, but never Christmas. I mean, what a powerful explanation, description of a cursed and joyless place. It's always frozen and it's never Christmas. But of course, we as the believer know and celebrate as we did yesterday and leading up in this Advent season that Christmas has come, that Jesus took on human flesh, that he was incarnate among us. But today I want us to think about something we might not often think about and that is when Jesus took on human flesh in his incarnation, He never took it off. He never unbecame flesh. He was flesh and continues to be flesh even today. So think about the stages of Jesus. As you look back in biblical history, we know that Jesus has always existed perfectly within the Trinity. The Trinity existed before the Bible was written, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he had this preexistent glory in himself, one God in three persons, But then at Christmas, he was conceived by the Virgin Mary and he was born in human flesh. He became a human being and he dwelt among us and lived among us, fully God, fully man. And then at about age 33, the crowds gathered and called crucify him. And he was crucified on Good Friday. He was in the tomb for three days. He rose again from the dead on Easter. And we know that he rose not in spirit but in body, albeit a transformed body. And he appeared to the disciples and to others. Ultimately, hundreds of witnesses saw Jesus in the body. And then he ascended into heaven. And we are saying that Jesus ascends into heaven in that same transformed body, fully God and fully man. 
When you imagine Jesus at the right hand of the Father, he is in a body. It's a transformed body, but it is a human body. It's got arms, it's got legs, it's got a face. Jesus remains in a human form forever. Now, that's a weighty theological truth. That sounds really dense and heavy, but don't fear. We've got 20 minutes together to unpack the eternal humanity of Jesus forever and ever, so don't worry about it. According to the wicked white witch, it's always winter but never Christmas, but according to the believer, it's always Christmas. It's always the incarnation. It's always God in the flesh. It's always Christmas. And actually, according to the believer in South Carolina, it's always Christmas and never winter. It's the opposite of cursed Narnia. We live in the promised land. So this Advent season, as we think about Jesus' humanity, we're going to continue to think about Jesus' humanity throughout the year. So let me do two things today. We're going to walk through some biblical evidence that Jesus is still in human flesh now at the right hand of the Father. And then after we've proved it, we're going to apply it. What does this mean for us today? Okay, so we're just going to do those two things. Let's start with proofs for Jesus's forever humanity. Because I see some of you sitting here thinking, this can't be true. I mean, it can't be true that Jesus assumed a human body when he ascended into heaven. I thought he came, he did his time as a human being, and once that was done, he couldn't get out of that body soon enough. He had never had a body before the world was created. He didn't want a body after he had accomplished what he did on the cross. And so surely he is back in heaven as a spirit, just like the Father is spirit, just like the Holy Spirit is spirit. Surely Jesus has assumed the spirit once again, and he's done with the body for forever. What do we make about places like 1 Peter 3.18 that say that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit? So I hear you. I hear those concerns, and we are going to carefully walk through very quickly six biblical evidences that Jesus has kept his humanity, okay? And we're just going to scratch the surface on these, jot them down. We can think about these later. But number one, we know Jesus keeps his humanity from his incarnation in the body. We studied this on Christmas Eve, but we say in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Similarly, in Philippians 2.7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So if Jesus' humanity was being described as like a costume that he put on over his divinity and not as this new identity for himself, then we could easily see how once Jesus has done the incarnation, he can take off the costume and he's done. But that's not how it's being described. It's not saying the word assumed this, this costume of humanity. It's saying the word became flesh and so actually the burden of proof lies in the other direction if the bible says he became flesh and then never goes back and says that he unbecame flesh it's the person that says jesus is spirit today that should be up here defending that position not me because we've seen he assumes flesh he never takes it off where in the bible does it say that he has assumed a spiritual body number one 
He becomes flesh. Number two, we know Jesus keeps his humanity from his bodily resurrection. Now, this is a Christmas sermon. It's not an Easter sermon. But if there was any moment where Jesus was going to shed his humanity, it would seem like it would be in the resurrection, right? Once he has gone through life, once he has died on the cross, he's going to rise again. That would be a great time. But all scripture writers agree, Jesus didn't rise from the dead in the spirit. He rose from the dead in the body. He didn't redefine death by coming back as a spirit. He defeated death by coming back in the body. If Jesus was crucified and he came back as a ghost, no one could agree that he has defeated death. He's done what we just assume in a fantasy world that dead people then become ghosts. But Jesus defeated death because his physical body breathed, got up, was transformed, and appeared to us as an actual body. So we know he's a human because he took on flesh. We know he retains his humanity because of his resurrection. Number three, we know Jesus keeps his humanity from his post-resurrection appearances. So like the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that Jesus rose from the dead, we also will rise from the dead, but that we shall all be changed. So something happens even when we rise from the dead, just like Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus did undergo a change. When he took on his new body, it was a transformed body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. So when Jesus took on this new body, it was different. Like the disciples are in the upper room, they have the door locked, and Jesus walks through the wall, I assume, and appears among them, which regular bodies can't do, but Jesus' transformed body could do. But before we think he's a spirit or a ghost, he says to his disciples, give me something to eat so that I can eat in front of you and prove to you that I'm not a ghost, I actually have a body. Now what's key about the way Jesus rises from the dead is people still recognize Jesus in his new transformed body. One of my favorite scenes on Easter morning is in the Gospel of John and it's of course Mary in the garden. She's gone to see Jesus, the tomb is empty. She's weeping and she starts talking to somebody that she thinks is the gardener and is Jesus, which is just like full of meaning because Jesus is the true gardener who made the world and we are now in Eden 2.0. She thinks he's the gardener, but that actually says something about Jesus's transformed body. It's so plain and so ordinary she thinks he's the landscaper. Like when I come in on Monday morning and the guy's got the leaf blower and he's blowing the heck out of our pine straw all across Sumter Street, that could be Jesus. I mean, that's how unremarkable he appeared on Easter morning to Mary, that he just looked like a regular human being. But then when Jesus speaks to her and calls her by name, she recognizes him. He's got a transformed body, but it's immediately recognizable once it like registers to her, this is Jesus, she knows Jesus. And that's what happens with the disciples too. Once they see Jesus and they get over the shock, they recognize him as Jesus. He's not a different person. He doesn't take on a different identity. He looks like Jesus. 
which is why we assume when we are resurrected into the new life and we are in the new heavens and the new earth, we're actually gonna recognize each other. We're gonna see each other and whatever our transformed body looks like has to have some relation with our old body because we will see each other much like we see each other today. Number four, we know Jesus keeps his humanity from his scars, from his scars. Now, this is amazing. This is a sermon of its own. It might come to us on Easter. In Jesus's newly transformed, imperishable body that will exist forever, he still has scars in his hands and feet and his side. Now, we were at a neighborhood party, a block party for Christmas, and Santa made an appearance, and it was wonderful, and the kids got a kick out of seeing Santa, and that was great. And then Santa left, and then a stranger showed up, and he was at the buffet table, and he was hoarding the meatballs, and my daughter said, that's Santa. And I said, how do you know that's Santa? He looks nothing like it. And she says, he's wearing the same shoes. And sure enough, Santa still had his vans on. It was Santa. We could tell because there was something that he carried over from Santa to regular neighbor and my daughter spotted it. And Jesus kind of does the same thing. He shows up and people are incredulous. Could this really be? He looks like Jesus. He sounds like Jesus. Could this really be Jesus? What does Jesus do as the ultimate proof? I am here in an actual body that shares something with the body that you knew on Good Friday. He says in Luke 24, see my hands and feet. This is me. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus proves his humanity with his scars. Actually, we read in Revelation 5, 6 that when we see Jesus in heaven, he is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus will appear in his glory, but never without the fundamental truth of his identity that he is one who has been slain. There's any doubt that Jesus is standing here in the body, see his hands, see his feet, see his side. It is Jesus in the flesh. Number five, we know Jesus keeps his humanity from his ascension. We read about this back in Acts chapter one as we go through this series. Listen to this description of Jesus's ascension. And when Jesus had said these things, as the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. None of us were there. None of us got to see Jesus in the body ascend from the dimension of earth to the dimension of heaven, but we will see Jesus return in the body in the same way from the dimension of heaven into the dimension of earth. Number six, and finally, we know Jesus keeps his humanity from all the descriptions of him in heaven. Think about these verses. You can write these references down, but Colossians 1.15 describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. 
God is spirit, he's invisible. Jesus appears as the image, the physical image of the invisible, immaterial God. Philippians 3.21 says, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like what? His glorious body. He has a body, it's glorious. That's what our body is going to become like. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's his description. He is the man of heaven. And finally, 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not the one who was the man. He is the man of heaven. He is the man Christ Jesus. I think you guys are picking up what I'm putting down. I think you're hearing that Christmas never ends. Like once Jesus becomes flesh, he never unbecomes flesh. When he's resurrected, he's transformed, but he has a physical body that can be recognized as what he once was in the body, and he is now fully God, fully man, bearing the appearance and the scars of his humanity forever. How interesting, how profound that he would do that. It seems like he could have done that a different way, but why would he assume humanity and keep humanity forever? What does this mean for us and how do we apply something like this? Well, hold that thought. Because I've always wondered what it would be like to be on the receiving end of a short-term missions trip. Have you ever been on a missions trip and then wondered what would it have been like to to be the ones receiving the missions trip? When I say a short-term missions trip, I mean that a group typically goes overseas for a short amount of time to do a good work or a good deed or, or to teach or to put on a VBS or something, and you're there in a foreign culture for like a week or two, and then you come back to your own culture. That's a short-term missions trip. Many of you in this room have been on them. What does it look like to be on the receiving end of one of them? We know that there's such thing as a good short-term mission trip, right? That you go and you're under the local leadership and you are serving what they're already doing and you're building true friendships and true connections that are going to last beyond the actual trip. And I hope that's what we're doing as a church. I hope that's our engagement in the Middle East and that's what we're about. That's a good short-term mission trip. But we've all heard the horror stories and maybe have been on a bad short-term missions trip, which would be entitled wealthy Americans crashing into a local culture for a feel-good photo op. You put in your four-hour work day doing crummy work that locals could have done better than you, and then you go off on a sightseeing venture, and you're counting down the days until you can get out of this place and back to the motherland of clean water and better internet connection. What would it feel like to be on the receiving end of one of those bad mission trips? The team comes, and no matter what good they're doing that you actually need, they're digging a well, they're building a church building for your community, you just have this like sinking, gross feeling 
that they're counting down the days to get out of here. There's something so repulsive about me and my community that you can't bear to be with us and to make a real connection to us that you can't wait to get out of here and back to your homeland. No matter what the gift is that you gave, it's a Ebenezer in the worst kind of way. Whenever I use that well, I kind of think that came at the hands of people who are nowhere to be found, they're gone, and I'm never going to see them again. Compare that awful feeling to what we are saying about the Christmas incarnation of Jesus. Now we know from our theology this was not a short-term mission trip. This was not a once and done kind of deal when God took on flesh. He didn't come for a photo op. He didn't come for a quick visit to say that he loves us and then to get out of here. He didn't even come to give us some good stories in the gospels that we can model ourselves after. He didn't come just to even give us the greatest gift of all, our salvation from sin on the cross. When Jesus came, he took on human flesh forever and God's mission trip to us never ends. When Jesus was in his pre-incarnate glory and he was moving towards his conception within the Virgin Mary, he knew that was a line in the sand that once he crossed he would never go back as God himself but he assumed human flesh he became flesh and he never unbecame it what happened has stayed true for 2,000 years and it will stay true through all eternity Emmanuel doesn't mean God was with us it means God was with us. He is with us, joined to us as living, breathing human beings forever. Our great high priest, who sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us, is the man of heaven. Jesus, sympathetic to our weaknesses, because he was a man, And because he is a man, his incarnation continues forever. But I want to leave us with even one more final thought of application. Because I'm rereading the Gospels now. I'm starting my Bible reading plan early so I get ahead, so I don't fall behind. So I'm going to send out a church email this week with Bible reading plans. In fact, I found this nifty tool that's a... Bible reading plan generator. You can plug in variables like I want to read on Monday afternoons and Wednesday mornings and I want to read the whole Bible in six years. What do I do? And, and it'll just like compute it and, and pump you out a plan. And I ran around the house and showed the whole family. No one was impressed as I was, but you will get the Bible generating reading plan in your inbox this week and it's incredible. So I'm reading the Gospels and I'm just reintroduced to Jesus once again and who wouldn't give their left arm to be transported back to that day, that place, anywhere in the life of Jesus and just spend an hour near him 
and next to him and around him. I mean, just to watch Jesus, to see the way he carried himself in a crowd, to see the way he moved about among the people, to see the way he would pause next to somebody that we wouldn't pause next to and attend to that person. I mean, to hear his voice, a man who spoke with such simplicity but such power that the crowds were spellbound. They were astonished. They had heard all the greatest teaching in the world and they said, we never heard somebody teach with such authority as this man just to hear him speak. He can silence the waves with a word and he can speak a blessing over an infant child just to hear his voice. What would it be like to touch him? I mean, the woman of sin who comes in and weeps over his feet and touches his feet and washes and dries them for the joy of her forgiveness to touch Jesus himself. I think about the woman in the crowd who finds her way to him and grabs the hem of his garment and power like moves out of Jesus and into her and heals that bleeding within her and she is restored by the power of Jesus. Mary in the garden who gets to see the resurrected Jesus holds him so tightly that he actually has to gently ask her in the gospels, could you please let go of me? I've got other things that I need to attend to to touch the person of Jesus. But above all, to see him. I mean, just to see him. I've seen a hundred renderings of Jesus but it's all a mist in my mind. It doesn't add up together and, and I can't get a clear picture of who he is, but, but to see his face and his features and his eyes and just get a glimpse of that so that I could hold that and treasure that. And anytime I read about him in my Bible, I could actually see the face of Jesus. Well, I am happy to tell you, friend, that if you are in Christ, you will see Christ. Because the Jesus who will greet us when he returns in the same way that he ascended is that same yet transformed Jesus bearing his face and his scars. And when we meet him, we will see him as he is. He will return to us. We will hold him touch him, hear him, be with him, and above all, see his face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what absolute joy, what wonder, what splendor that you took on flesh to dwell among us and you kept flesh so that you will continue to dwell among us. You don't undo what you've done. You have linked yourself to us forever. We know our salvation is sure because your spirit is the seal and we know our salvation is sure because you keep your humanity. Praise be to God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We long to see you face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.